0: When's the last time somebody with complete undivided attention listened for, you know, 45 minutes or an hour straight and, and was, you know, only to serve your best interests and, and, and maximize your potential? That's the gift of coaching.
1: Well, hello and welcome back to the Faculty Factory podcast. I'm Kim Skerepski here at Hopkins and I'm looking at Dr. Brian Klein from Brown. Hi, Brian.
0: Hi, Kim. How are you?
1: I'm great. I'm so happy to meet you. And this introduction and this guest on the Faculty Factory podcast is due to our dear friend, Dr. Rachel Salas here in Hopkins Neurology. And she highly recommended Brian. Said, You have to get him on the podcast. He's brilliant. He's great with coaching and is part of her AOA fellowship. And you coached her. And She said he's he's definitely a superstar, slam dunk, got to get him on. So Dr. Brian Klein is a professor of emergency medicine at the Alpert Medical School of Brown University, and there he is also the vice chair for education. So again, Dr. Klein, thank you, Brian. Thanks for being here. And Would you like to say anything else about your position there at Brown and what you do in the emergency department?
0: Yeah, uh, first, Kim, just please call me Brian. And, uh, you know, Rachel may have oversold me a little bit, but I appreciate the kind introduction. Yeah, my my role at Brown, I've been in uh, various educational roles uh, throughout my career, starting in the student, you know, running our student clerkship. Uh, I was a a longtime residency program director. And for the past seven or eight years, I've been serving as vice chair for education, uh, overseeing all of our educational programs and providing support therein. And uh, yeah, so that that's um, a little bit about my kind of career, what I do day to day.
1: Now, how did you get involved um, in education? Can you tell us a little bit about your journey? I think people are always interested in how people go through their own leadership roles and I, and say, oh, that's the thing for me. How Why education as opposed to any other number of areas of expertise? What was it that grabbed you?
0: Yeah, I think, it, you know, it. It Cohen for me as a medical student, considering which specialty to choose, I was drawn into emergency medicine for what I had perceived as a really rich teaching environment. You know, I, I found myself as a student, you know, being pulled in for just teaching opportunities in the ED more so than I had in any other setting. And then, you know, fast forward to during my residency, I think part of my um, career path towards medical education was. I had a lot to do with the mentors that I saw as a, as a resident. They, they truly helped me view medical education as a, as a direct extension of patient care and, and helped me understand the kind of the the magnifying and and ripple effect that you can have on patient care through, through education. Um, And that started me on a very, you know, kind of a more inquiry journey. I, I have to say my, my first couple of years out of residency, I was very much, you know, doing high, you know, performing your clinical emergency medicine with dabbling in in teaching, uh, but then started to make more of a commitment towards actually learning some teaching skills and doing some curriculum development. And then, you know, one thing led to another and I was asked to start doing more student supervision and then things, uh, kind of, you know, right time, right place. In some ways, the, the residency director position was, was open a few years later. And I, I was able to, um, to transition into that role. And, um, yeah, so I think, you know, uh, you know, this is maybe, a, a kind of a, a lesson. I think some of your listeners have probably found that, um, sometimes we kind of kind of fall backwards or sideways into these educational leadership roles without a ton of preparation and really knowing exactly what we're getting into, but it just, you know, it seems like the right, you know, thing that at the time, and it's, it's consistent with our interests in, and where we see our career going. And so we kind of jump at them and, um, and And many times it works out well. and and that's that you know we stay on that path. and And for me, that was the case
1: well, I, I love it. Thanks for sharing your your story. It's so important that you you mentioned, and I'm sure at Brown, like here at hopkins, you you talked about understanding that this was an interest of yours, but then that you had to develop some skill sets. You mentioned, Exploring the foundations of education and how to build a curriculum, and putting rubrics together, and really investing in that knowledge base that would um, really equip you and, and give you the confidence. And so I'm, I'm curious um, about that. You're seeking that additional training, and how you went about fitting that in with your <laughs> your your real job, your day job, and then yeah. how you were able to be valued and how Brown. Values you as um, an educator and how you were able to be promoted to professor. Was there um, a story there?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the story, um, the consistent thread there is you know seeking seeking opportunities to continuously learn. And and for me, it started out by doing things within the the emergency medicine community. There's a really uh, strong program director, like like many specialties have a, a program director organization, and through something called CORD. Uh, You know, I I was able to learn from colleagues, do a lot of collaborative work, get some uh, faculty development on how to manage a program. I ended up pursuing a couple of other, um, like the Harvard Macy program, I thought was really valuable when you're um, really trying to understand uh, adult learning theory and and how to design a curriculum. And so that was was really valuable. And, uh, you know, I, I feel like I've always been on the lookout for things that would enhance my, you know, without having done an educational master's or fellowship, kind of enhance my street cred as an educator. So, you know, for example, the AAMC has the Medical Education Research Certificate. That's something um, that I found useful in in trying to do some educational research. And then, um, yeah, just kind of constantly on the lookout for development opportunities, how that was valued at Brown. I mean, I think it's been for me, you know, the pathway to promotion was, um, was, you know, was not meteoric. It was a very slow and steady and um, kind of plotting experience. And uh, it's something that took, took me a long time to probably, you know, embarrassingly, probably longer than others to, to realize the importance of, of, um, you know, to be successful, you really got to, in the scholarship realm anyway, you've got to uh, find collaborators with mutual interests. And so it wasn't until, and it's hard because I know many of your listeners have like day jobs where they're doing a lot of administrative and, and managerial things. So it's hard to translate a lot of the work you're doing into scholarship, but uh, ultimately kind of fell into sync with a group of, of educators with uh, similar interests and, and uh, was able to try to get some scholarly productivity, uh, you know, off the ground. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it, I think um you know, the, the, the things that I've noticed about people that are most successful in this realm is one they've got uh, an area of focus and they're a, and they're able to focus. So focus is number one. Um, two is collaborators, finding a group of people that you can work well with um, and then and then obviously mentorship. And it wouldn't be you know none of us would be where we are today without the the support of our mentors.
1: Well, Brian, thanks, first of all, for put, putting a plug in for faculty development across the spectrum. It's job security for people like me who do faculty <laughs> development. And we love it. So thank you, thank you for endorsing ongoing learning and development. And thank you also for reminding us about focus and how to almost like double dip. When you get collaborators and you figure out what your focus is, um, there's no sense in doing it your own on your own and being a lone wolf model. It just doesn't work that way on so many levels. Not only for e- efficiency, but also for the sense of the overwhelming burden. Sometimes feeling so isolated. I think that the nice benefit is when you have the collaborators, you have a tribe, a team that where you could all win on scholarship. That um, certainly helps the, the CV and a career pro- progression. But it also helps and just the human social connection of being able to share, you know, troubles and, and hardships and helping each other and boosting each other and encouraging each other. So I think there's so much wisdom in what you're saying is getting collaborators. And then of course, you, another kudo to you for um, promoting scholarship that that is, it's hard to get around that. And then when you're in academic medicine, that is kind of the currency of the trade. So there's again, no sense of doing that alone. You get a yeah bunch of people together and everybody can win on that endeavor. So thank you.
0: Yeah. I think the hardest thing for folks uh, in medical education, they're doing so much, you know, what I call roll up your sleeves, um, you know, keep the lights on teaching that they're, they're front and center. They're actually delivering a lot of uh, educational content, but but they're very you know infrequently stopping and saying okay how do i how do i translate what i just did all that time and effort to you know prepare that lecture or what ha- whatever um into into something that's you know the currency of of promotion which is a presentation or publication so i think one of the turning points for for me and i think for some other colleagues here at brown was actually acknowledging that openly and then forming uh an education section that is designed to meet regularly and and support one another in these in this exact area and so uh, just just the coming together of our education you know we have a lot like many departments we have a big department we got a lot of people doing education um and uh it was clear in such a large group that there were times where there were a lot of projects where people would have been interested in in working together on but they just just simply weren't aware of them and so you know trying to that that just the formation of the education section in our in our regular meetings and and the kind of the the cadence of it and the the focus was something that helped many of us translate our work into scholarship
1: well before we go into the the meat of what you want to talk about which i can't wait to get to is i want i just want to hit this again because you you just said something really important again and that is the formation of an education section. And, and that is making me think back to Dr. Rachel Salas, because she's a Clifton Strengths Inventory trained person. <laughs> and she talks a lot about strengths. And it sounds to me like what you just said, starting this new section. it's There's so many people who are stretched so thin, that have so many great ideas, so many gifts and talents, and so many um. Ideas about what to do, for example, to produce scholarship, but just don't have the capacity to put things together. If you find one person who has as one of their gifts, you know, organizing or or bridge building, it just takes that one person to say, all right, enough of this. We all know we have these interests, we're all kind of scattered. Let's bring all the troops to the table and let's figure this out. And sometimes that catalyst is just what you need to grab all that energy and harness it and then really direct it and then boom, you're off and running. So I just wanted to underline what you just said, that sometimes it just takes that one person and maybe that one person is you or it's your colleague who's really good at doing that kind of thing. And it doesn't take too much effort to just kickstart that and you're, you know, you're off to the races. So I just think that's really important. I wanted to make sure everybody heard what you just said.
0: <laughs> yeah, I don't want to take full credit for it. There was a lot of, I would say, mutual recognition among my peers that, um, you know, we would all benefit from a forum where we got together, um, p- provided consultation on each other's projects, brainstormed about future uh, ideas. In, um, in even some of the sessions, we sit down and actually write. And uh, so, you know, each of these meetings takes a, like a, a little bit of a different direction, Uh, but it's been, you know, it's, it's really helped us generate uh, some, some productive scholarship.
1: Exactly. Great job, Brian. So you, you mentioned something also uh, about mentor, mentorship and how important that is. And, And this is going to get into where we want to talk about today is for a long time, mentorship was the word of the day and a lot of publications around mentorship. And it still is very, very important, as we all know, as the literature demonstrate. And yet there's something relatively new that's popped up in academic medicine, maybe not new, new, but it's been around and it's becoming even more prevalent. So kick off this fun topic of discussion today.
0: Um, yeah, so I, I mean I wanted to talk a little bit about the concept of, of coaching. and coaching is something that you know, I, I, don't, know, I don't know if I would call it uh, trendy, but it's certainly a front of mind for a lot of people right now. There's uh, more and more being written about it. and I think people are, I think are familiar with the idea of uh, you know a, a senior executive working with a coach or a CEO or even from some other industry. But, um, but I think it's becoming more more and more common for people, in the early or middle part of their career in, in academic medicine to seek coaching, um, and and you know how does that how does that differ from mentoring, which is like you said kind of the the traditional uh, model that we think about. And um, so maybe we could start there with some distinguishing yes. you know elements. So you know mentoring is often uh, viewed as someone who you know the mentor is is the expert. Um, they, they give advice it's, um, I think conceptually, I see it as a little more directive. Um, it's, uh, there's a, this, I would say it's hierarchical in some ways, and it's very much about problem solving and coaching is a little different. It coaching focuses more on the individual and it's, it's more developmental. It's exploratory. It's more of a partnership, um, less, less hierarchical, and it, it's sort of I, one of the big distinguishing features to me is like in in mentoring, it's 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 kind of understood that the mentor has a lot of the answers, and you're there to to get get them from and it, uh, on whatever topics at hand. And in coaching, the sort of the mindset is that the the coachee, me, the uh, the um, the the audience, the 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 individual, has the solution. It's just maybe. Um, it just needs a little exploration to get there. And it's kind of buried somewhere in between, uh, you know, just slightly below the surface rather. So like, so like a mentoring conversation, you might hear phrases like, you know, if I were you, I would do this, or, mm-hmm. um, you know, what you need to do is this, or, you know, that reminds me of a time when I um, that's some of the common phrases you hear with in mentoring, whereas, whereas in coaching, you might hear something like, well, how are you, how are you seeing the situation? How are you defining this problem? Um, you know what are you learning in this process? What what's an ideal outcome? Um, what impact is this having on you? So there you can there's just like a little bit of a different kind of tone, and that's not to say I don't I don't mean to imply like mentoring is bad and, and coaching is good. There's a, there's a place um, along the spectrum for for both of these conversations to happen, really kind of in, in the same almost at the same time. Yeah, so I guess you know the the idea of coaching um, is that there is. Um, yeah, I think we're very we're very familiar with the idea of the leader having all the answers and kind of doing a lot of telling. Whereas coaching is is you know, it, you are the expert in your own life, and it, it's designed to honor that uh, more so, I think, than than the other um, you know the other types of conversations we have.
1: Thanks, Brian. I, I like the way you describe that because I'll have I'll have conversations with my friends slash peers slash mentors slash coaches. And it's almost become like a, a joke, an annoying joke that I'll say, all right, Cindy, please take off your you know coaching hat and put on your mentoring hat. I just want to know. I just want to know what to here <laughs> or vice versa. I'll say, I don't need you to mentor me. Um, I I need you to coach me because I feel like I, I have it in me, but I'm not quite sure about the right way. So I'll ask someone to put on, be a coach don't be my buddy, don't be my friend, coach me or mentor me. So it's interesting that the way you described it with those different types of questions, I will also find myself thinking, wait a minute, Kim, are you sliding in the mentoring role or are you trying to be the coach role? And I too will sometimes preface this with, you know, if you don't mind indulging me, I'd like to put on a little bit of a coaching hat right now, because I suspect that you already know what you want to do. Versus I'll say, okay, now I'm going to wear my mentoring hat because what you're saying reminds me so much of when I was at your stage and I did the same thing. And so that's the, as you're saying, it's almost, um, unless you're engaged in a professional coaching relationship, I can see how we can all... Take the best fruit from all of those kind of um, relationships. So I like the way you describe the questioning differences.
0: yeah, and it's it, like you said, it's can be very fluid. One thing that if if you start to you know adopt a little bit of more of a coaching mindset and approach to the to the people you're working with, it can be a little unnerving initially for people who are coming to you saying, "Wait a minute, like I, I want you to, yeah, exactly, I want you to tell me what to do. I came here for your advice. I want you to tell me. And, and you're sitting there sort of probing in a very non-directive way and, and trying yeah. to get their perspective, it's, it you know, there's just not something people are familiar with. So I think on both sides, it requires a little bit of practice and just kind of some you know, open communication.
1: Yeah, I love it. I like, it. so how do you do it? So once you, um, and describe or help people understand the differences between mentoring and coaching, then how do you go about doing it? Like why is Dr. Rachel Salas like so like over the moon about you and your style? I can't wait to hear about it.
0: Well, I don't know. Like, so let me, let me just back up a little bit and explain how I even came to coaching Uh, a a couple of years ago. I was, um, I was asked to serve as the interim chair of our department and uh, it was, um, you know, I'm not sure anyone feels completely ready for, or, you know, stepping into a, uh, a new role, especially with a lot more responsibility and so shortly before I started that interim experience, I enlisted the help of a, of a coach. Um, and the first thing I realized is I had no idea what, what a coach did because, you know, we'd have these conversations about topics that I would bring, you know, challenges I was having, and um, and she wasn't really telling me the answer. And so I
1: started, <laughs> but this is the to, biggest waste of money ever. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um so, um, but it was, it was also like, you know, I had been curious about coaching for a while and having experienced it firsthand, it was just really, um, I found it like empowering when, when we would have these conversations and, um, and the, the my coach would really help me understand and reframe things. Um, and you know, it's funny, a lot of our conversations weren't about the topic at hand. They were about like my Underlying assumptions and beliefs and values and and things that were you know informing my reaction to a problem and and how I was seeing it. Um, So she she really helped me uncover some blind spots, helped me understand how I was showing up to other people in certain situations. Mm -hmm. And so after a while, you know, I was finding tremendous value out out of it. I thought to myself, "What is this person like? What are they doing to me that that I might then you know add to others?" Because a big part of my job is trying to develop people and. And so um, I became really curious about the coaching skills and concepts and and ended up uh, pursuing a, uh, like a formal certification program and then uh, completing a a requisite number of hours uh, of, of coaching to become, to become certified. And so I'm, I'm still kind of, at the tail end of that process right now, just, um, to get, you know, um, certified through a specific, uh, certification body. But, um, but suffice to say, like after it was after that firsthand experience that I, I started realizing like all the, all the kind of leadership development work that I had done in various courses or programs or, you know, workshops over the years really didn't compare to the unique value of that one-on-one individualized coaching. Um, so I, I found it I found it really powerful um, and I learned a ton about myself. And so when you say, when you say, how do you do it? Like um, I think that maybe the best way to describe that would be to talk about some of like the mindsets that like you bring to the table as a, as a coach. And, and I guess the first thing is that you're, you're coaching the, the person, not necessarily the topic. So, you know, you might come to me with a particular issue, Um, Kim, I don't necessarily need to know all the details or the content or, but I'm, I'm coaching how your, your perspective on that problem. Um, And so that's where we kind of focus our energy. The other mindset, I think a lot of coaches bring is this idea that, you know, you, you honor the person as being, you know, creative and resourceful and, and whole and, uh, and trust in their capability to um, see through to, to the solution. Um, yeah, and then there's a lot of self-management as a coach. It's it's trying to make sure that you're present and and you're agile and you're and you're always curious. Um, so yeah, those are some of the things that I feel like are important mindsets to bring to the table.
1: Yeah, I, I like that the person as as a whole and recognizing and starting from that that assumption, you know, versus sometimes we think of the assumption ladders that we kind of zip through and then come to conclusions and cherry pick the data we want. But a good, a healthy assumption, if you will, would be, all right, um, let's start at this common assumption, this basic assumption is that you are strong, you are capable, you are trained, you are skilled, you are knowledgeable, you're successful, you are this already, and Let's see how we can look for opportunities to grow, or see, or uncover, as you said, these blind spots, or uncover hidden gems inside of you that you didn't know were there, or you forgot were there. So that is what I think is a a beautiful gift that we as coaches can give to people, reminding them that you have it; it's it's in there. <laughs> when we're yeah. going to we're going to find it, and we're going to polish that up.
0: That's a great great way to say it.
1: Well, I, I I also like when people ask me, what's the difference between mentoring and coaching? I try to remind myself that I think, okay, past, present, future, past, present, future. If you really um, need to dig into the past, that's a therapist. Mm-hmm. If you really are in the present, the here and now, and you need someone to tell you, I need to know how to do this and that and the other, that's a mentor. If you're thinking about the future, how do I get to, how do I become, that's a coach. Mm. Well, I kind of think of past, present, future, therapy, mentoring, and coaching. And as you said, Brian, doesn't mean that all that can't be working in tandem, parallel tracks because we mm. are complete whole people. And we're always kind of doing these recursive, non-recursive looping, <laughs> feeding exactly. into. So I think it's such a valuable contribution to our development is adding coaching. So Tell me more about the, the ways that if some people maybe don't want to or can't, they're saying, okay, great, Kim and Brian, what are you telling me? That I have to go either become a coach or get a coach? What if people don't have the time to become a coach and be certified like you and me?
0: Yeah, I think uh, that's that's a great area to focus on because there are some foundational, I call them coach-like skills that don't necessarily require a huge investment of you know going and you know, doing a certification course and and etc. Um, and so, I and maybe for the rest of our time, can we could talk about just like three core skills. That's and awesome. the first is um, it's sometimes called co-creating the relationship, which sounds like a haughty thing, but it's really like a kind of designing how we're going to work together in uh, and, and how we're going to interact. And and this is something that we could probably all benefit from in in many of our working relationships or the teams that we're on. Stopping the to say, you know, um, even if it's even if it's a group that's been working together for a while, you know, okay, what's working here, and how can we um, have a more successful interaction? So, a typical um, uh, discussion around you know designing the relationship would start by just setting expectations, establishing norms. Um, and it's almost like you imagine, okay, there's you, Kim, and there's me. And and then there's this third entity kind of floating out in there between us. And it's called the relationship. And we kind of point to it and say, well, what, you know, what do we want? Like, what, what does that look like if it's going to be successful and productive and, and effective? Like, what do we want the terms of that relationship to look like? And, um, and, you know, we're both responsible for creating it. Um, it's, it, yeah, it's about ground rules and logistics. And so some you know, some questions that that might come out of that experience with a, a colleague or a coworker would be things like, um, you know, what do you need from me? What do you expect from me? What are my responsibilities and your responsibilities? Um, how frequently do we want to meet and be updated? Uh, how do you prefer to receive feedback? Um, how should we let each other know if something's not working? Uh, if conflict arises, how do we want to resolve that? Like, Things that seem so on their face, like easy to say, but we, you know, think about how many times our work relationships or, you know, whatever it may be, a relationship with a colleague or, or just they kind of go awry because we haven't had this kind of um, setting of the of the ground rules. Um, so, and and I, and I say this in context of like you know starting a new relationship, but the truth is, I, <laughs> I have a colleague who says, you know, every relationship is a living, breathing thing. And if if every living if every living breathing thing creates waste, then sometimes you got to clean up your waste. And so, um, you know, this, this redesigning or co-creating can happen at any stage of of a uh, of a working relationship.
1: A garbage day! It's garbage <laughs> day. We got to take out the garbage. Yeah, oh, Brian, yeah. I love that. It's so simple and yet profound. And as you were saying those questions to me, like, well, what do you expect of me? What are the boundaries? What do you want? from What do you need from me? I was kind of like sitting here going, that is so easy and how it can be applied to so many relationships in the lab, in the clinic, in this classroom, in the home, at family reunions, during holiday, all those things uh, with co-authors. Oh my gosh, Oh, that's it's, so simple. Yeah. You know, it's so simple, but so important. And when you rush over that, like you, you know, like you just expressed on your face with, with co-authors, how many times you send them an email and just say, give me feedback. And like, well, wait a minute, what is it you expect from me? When? What time? What's the what level of feedback? So the basic questions can have such profound implications. So Thanks for for sharing yeah. something so amazing co-creating relationship and just setting expectations and norms I love it.
0: Yeah so that that's the first step in in uh, you know that kind of conscious conversation helps to create safety and trust in in any in any relationship. Um so with with that um and that's something that we can practice I think most of us can envision you know uh, a relationship that we would benefit from some either taking out the trash or, or you know a, a, a quick redesign. So we could, uh, this probably wouldn't have to look too far for an opportunity to practice oh my that. Gosh, um, it's
1: an easy thing to do with so many important, like I said, implications. I, I can think of a hundred things right off the bat that we think. Well, we talked about this. I mean, we talked about this last year. I mean, my colleague or my the my staff person, they know exactly what to expect from me. Do they really? When did mm-hmm. you have that last conversation? So you mean to say that you haven't changed, she hasn't changed, it hasn't changed, life hasn't changed, that you all expect that everybody knows what they're doing, and those things are static, and there's been no pandemic, and nothing has changed anything? Okay, continue deluding yourself. <laughs> you <laughs> you out of the garbage dump.
0: <laughs> oh, so true.
1: Oh, gosh so what other what other coach like skills do you
0: share? yeah, I mean again, this is something that you may have heard in other in other settings, uh, but it, it really the the focus of the coach is really listening in a deep and authentic way. And I think about these three levels of listening, level one being the most basic, where we're um oftentimes we're listening to respond. How many times have we been in the position of uh, just think, you know, not really listening, but thinking about what we're going to say. Um, it's a lot of it is like a self-referential thought, uh, around, you know, I'm listening to, do you tell me about your vacation, but all I can, you know, I just, I just want to think about my vacation and tell you about it. So, so it's pretty low level of, um, of sort of, you know, it's, it's not a very empathic type of, of listening. It's, it's very, like I said, it can be judgmental, self-referential and, and listening to respond. So, and we do, and, and, you know, we do that. We we can't all be intensely listening all the time, um, but with practice, we can get to a higher level. Level two is where we focus on things like data, information. Mm-hmm. We look. We focus on words and facts. And you know, I think a lot about this, Kim. When if you're if you're a clinician and you're taking a history, you know, it's the it's the you know duration, location, character, quality. You know, it's like I just kind of gathering the facts around the the you know the the illness or the symptoms that you're having. Um, and there's a role for that. I mean, people want to you know they want you to understand, but true, true, like deep listening, I would call like level three, where you're simultaneously observing all the nonverbals. you're you're looking at the emotions that that people are exhibiting. You're looking for resonance and dissonance in their in their voice, their body language, um, trying to listen carefully from some assumptions that they may be um, you know revealing in, in their in their language. And so, um, you know, some examples like a level one conversation might be you saying, Oh, well, I had a similar experience like that. Um, and you know, level two would be saying, you know, I'm I'm listening and I'm hearing that, you know, the important pieces here are, you know, the facts, and you go on and state them. Um, but level three listening is is these what we call sensing statements. Um, you know, I'm I'm sensing confusion or I'm noticing something in your voice there shifted, or you know, um what am I hearing there? It sounds like frustration or so it's like really trying to deeply engage with people. And, and that's something that um, it, it, it requires practice. There's no doubt. It's a skill that requires, you know, time, attention, and practice.
1: That level three reminds me of listening between the lines. You know, you'd say, you know, re read between the lines, you yeah. listen between the lines. That's and, a great
0: way to say it. Yeah.
1: And I like how you describe level one, two, three. And I, I also want to ask for your perspective on, I imagine you're going to say, well, Kim is not that it's bad because right away, I, I looked at my little sticky note from my coaching training, which has a big W-A-I-T, wait, and the acronym, is an acronym from Ellen Moore, who's a coach, who says, stands for, why am I talking? <laughs> it's to remind me to wait, Kim, shut up, because I, I tend to talk a lot. But I imagine you're going to tell me that, yes, levels of listening it's important that we get to level three the and, and really try to be more empathic and empathetic. However, the listening to respond and getting the data, as you pointed out, are important. And I'm imagining the listening to respond when you're telling me about your vacation, and I want to say, oh my gosh, that reminds me of my vacation. There is a time and place for that. And that might be in relationship building. Mm-hmm. And I would want perhaps the patient or my resident or, or my mentee to feel like, okay, you get me. Oh, we are, we are similar. We are same. that that basic human need to feel like I see you, you see me, we are not too different. So I can see, I tend to, I tend to do that, but I think I'm guessing you would tell me, well, all right, but then you move and you have an awareness of let's stop doing that. You've done that. Now you're building relationship and let's get Deeper and and progress up the ladder of listening. Am I right? Something
0: like yeah, that? Yeah. No. I, I think it, some some of it depends on the context. I mean, clearly there's a role for you know the, the, we they, these levels exist for a reason. You know, we're human and we can be in level one. Uh, level two is, I think, a lot about the work that we do in terms of patient care um, is okay. is level two. But yeah, I think it's some in some ways it depends on the context of the conversation. Um, you know, you don't always have to you know have to be Uh, you know, so dialed in if you're having a relatively, you know, social or informal conversation with someone. Um,
1: I'm imagining also like when I would start a coaching relationship with somebody, say the first time I meet them and they start talking, I'm not going to with the third sentence that I'm, I thought, Brian. I sense some dismay. you be like, wait a minute, weirdo! <laughs> I mean, I just met you 30 seconds ago, and now that you're all woo-wooing me, like, wait a minute. So I can see that there is also a progression as you build a relationship around as you mentioned earlier, safety and trust. That that's part of the a normal, natural uh, evolution.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. I just want to draw an analogy here to the, to the clinical environment. You know, I, am an emergency physician, so, you know, we, we meet people often only once and, and, you know, it can be, you know, in, intense and, and there's some time pressure and, and, you know, to build trust in a short period of time is, is, um, is not easy. Mm-hmm. So I think the default is to kind of get into level two and say, okay, let's just gather the data. Let's uh, get the, the, the HPI and the ROS and the, um, but what sometimes we fail to acknowledge, and and this is something that I'm continuing to work on in, in my practice, is, is um, you know, paying really close attention to those subtleties, those nuances during the communication where their, you know, their body language, patient's body language may sort of, you know, belie an underlying issue. And, and then start to ask, like, instead of just the facts, saying things like, well, you know, I think I understand what's going on here, but like, how, how is this, you know, what, what impact are all these things having on you? And then that's when patients start to realize, okay, they really are trying to get me here. They're there. You know, I'm, I'm feeling heard and, and acknowledged. Um, so the more you can practice level three, and I think there's an opportunity for many people who see patients to, to try to work on that every day.
1: Any other coach like skills you can impart to the faculty factory?
0: <laughs> yeah. The last piece I would want to get into is, uh, is this idea of questioning um, because you know, the, the real, the, 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 um, what I experienced in, in my coaching was someone who was asking a lot of provocative and, and, and somewhat um, you know, just challenging questions because they really kind of get you between the eyes. And yeah. and uh and there was no easy out because the questions she often <laughs> asked me did not have like yes or no responses. They, right. they required some really deep thought. And so I, I learned later about this concept of powerful questions. And and these are typically open-ended, uh short, um. Either present or future focused questions—they're they're simple and clean. Um, there's no runway to them. You know, I think a lot of us are guilty of kind of setting up our questions. Um, they're very uh, invitational and expansive, and there's no pretext or justification. Many of these questions start with the with the words "what" or "how." Mm-hmm. Um, so, so some examples would be, you know, if I, I share a, if I share a topic with you that's you know a challenge I'm having, you know, Kim, you might say, well, what's important about that? how how are you defining success in this situation? What's another way to look at this? Um, imagine a, an ideal outcome, describe uh, what that looks like, or something like, you know, on a scale of one to 10, how ready are you to, are you ready to commit to doing X, Y, or Z? So you see, these are like, these are things that make you really stop and think they, they don't, they don't let you off by saying, you know, they're not yes or no kind of questions. And so, um, I, and they're not like either or, or they're not loaded with assumptions. They're just really kind of open ended. So I, I think practicing using powerful questions is something that um, you know we can do with everyone that we interact with on a daily basis, and and it leads to just I think better conversation and, and sometimes richer insights for people that you're um, trying to work with.
1: And you're right, Brian, because that when you ask a real question and you actually then shut up and let and and. St- and B, be, be there with them. That says something to me like, Brian's not going anywhere. He's clearly not going to follow up with another. He's not going to, you know, fire more questions at me. He has asked me a deep question and he's going to sit back and he's going to wait for me and give me time and space to answer that. And that opens up to me a, a broader uh, a range of possibilities because not only am I trusting you that you're you're with me, you're not going to say, hello, Kim, anytime now, we got to go, we got to go. It's it's time that you are dedicating to me. It's almost sacred. And then you're with me. You're like saying, okay, I'm watching you think. I'm I'm here with you. Take as much time as you want. And that really just, in today's least workday, we never do those things, right? It's the drive-by, back <laughs> when humans used to walk by each other, the water cooler, the coffee machine is, how you doing? And there was only one answer to that. Pretty good, all right, whatever. Nobody really wants the real answer ever. You know, you, mm. don't, you don't want the person to stop you and, and light up into this that and the other. It's that superficial kind of questioning. So mm. you're right, the deep provocative questions and then the silence and the stillness and being comfortable with that silence and being finding comfort in discomfort really allows someone to explore. And so it and then it that's a unique thing happens in a relationship, and you're. I like how you point out we can do that with anybody. Can you imagine with your patients and with the staff in your clinic and with your colleagues and with the trainees in the lab when you actually ask a real question and stand there and give them space and look at them like, "Whoa, this guy's serious. He's he really this guy's not leaving, man. He's asking a question and sat down and hunkered down for twenty minutes. That is valuable. What a, what is a, What an investment in a a relationship and a person.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a great way to say it. And it kind of reminds me, Kim, of, you know, when some, when people ask me about like, you know, what, what is the most valuable part of being coached? And, you know, it's it's, it's like a million things and a million specific like topics that I can think of that I've benefited from, but it really, if nothing else, like the idea, like when's the last time somebody with complete undivided attention and, and focus on you um listened for you know 45 minutes or an hour straight and and was you know only to serve your best interests and 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 maximize your potential that's the gift of coaching is having somebody that um is willing to do that and is able to do that effectively whether it's like you said through silence or other tools um it's really it's a profoundly um you know unique and um I think rewarding experience
1: you're so right Brian because <laughs> even take out our daily jobs in our lives in academic medicine where, what do you mean? I've got my annual review. That's almost an hour together. But as your department director, (laughs) even interim Dr. Brian Klein, even if were you really investing in the career development of that faculty member, sometimes it's how many RVUs, how many times on Epic, are you closing your cases? Are you doing this? How many, how much grant monies is you bringing in? How many manuscripts are you publishing? And it's more like, because then what is that going to do for me, the director? Or what is that gonna be do for me, the mentor or um what is it gonna do for me, your wife or your partner or it's what what am I getting out of you so yeah, there's anything I'm thinking about or or dad or mom I mean the kids it's all about what can I get from you and I think many of us our faculty members, especially on the heels of all the the global pandemic and all the the nonsense happening is it's t- giving, giving, giving. We are depleted, just energy and life being sucked out of us. And you are so right, Brian. Coaching is the probably the only, maybe I'm thinking, maybe if your <laughs> your religious leader or your pastor or your rabbi does that, but that is so rare to have somebody just caring about you and not what I can I get from you.
0: Yeah, that that, that probably leads into my last point, Kim, is like, you know, the Right now, there's this epidemic of of burnout. There's a lot of disengagement among a lot of healthcare professionals, and there is some emerging evidence that suggests coaching can be an antidote or at least mitigate some of those feelings of burnout, disengagement, um, people finding um, a lack of joy or purpose in their work. And so there's been a few small studies that have been published just within the past couple of years um, looking and uh, mainly in the pr- primary care uh, physician population, but, and I'm sure I, I don't have like, I don't pretend to have an exhaustive uh, list of uh, publications that, that I've referred to on this, but, but I think increasingly, I guess the point is, um, you know, one of the frustrations you hear about from providers is, you know, just not feeling, um, you know, seen, heard, acknowledged and, um, and coaching, um, you know, I, I can see how it directly provides that. Um, and so, it's it, you know it's not going to solve the EMR, uh, no. but it, it can certainly uh, you know so it, it can certainly help you become more aware of your you know responses and your reactions to certain situations, and and for that I think um, it, it it has a place in in. You know, among other things, treating some of the symptoms we're seeing of burnout, uh, some of the burnout in providers.
1: Yeah, thanks. I hadn't thought about that, Brian, for referring back to the data that demonstrate the value of coaching. And so you're re- reminding me about a recent episode with Dr. Harriet Hoff. And they, she put together with a, her colleague a men- coaching program, co- group coaching program, which we a couple months ago just started implementing here at Hopkins as well, group coaching. Mm-hmm. Because when you think, you know, here at Hopkins, we've got over, you know, Five thousand faculty, full and part-time faculty, uh, to do coaching one-on-one would be quite an investment. Um, so we're trying to build that coaching in a group context capacity. And I think what the value you're saying, in addition to a lot of other value, is that the message is for leaders of institutions out there: think about coaching and coaching programming, and thinking about that as a resource for your faculty members and along the opposite end of the continuum at the micro level, at the person level, think about adopting some, as you point out, Brian, coach-like skills. So even if you, we as faculty members can't get coaching or become a coaching, a coach, Mm -hmm. minimally, we can embrace some of these skills that are coach-like. So I just think, I think it's an incredible value that you pointed out and elevated and (laughs) contributed to the important conversation around coaching, (laughs)
0: Well, thank you. Thank you very much.
1: So, <clears throat> well, folks, this has been Dr. Brian Klein at Brown, the Albert Medical School of Brown University, vice chair for education, professor of emergency medicine. And if you want to learn more about coaching or be coached by Dr. Brian, you'd email him at brian.klein, C L Y N E, at brownphysicians.org. And that will be on his podcast episode blurb on the faculty factory. Uh Brian, any last words for the faculty factory global community?
0: Oh it's just I just want to thank you Kim and it's a privilege to be to be part of this podcast. Uh, thank you so much.
1: All right thanks everybody. If you want to be on the podcast just email me at faculty factory Kim. That's one big long word faculty factory Kim at gmail.com. And if you have a guest or someone you think should be on, just like Rachel said we need to have Dr. Brian Klein and now we know why. Do the same thing. Just send them our way. Thanks so much, Brian.
0: Thank you so much.
1: Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions.